I'm Alan Skorsky with Bela Zebro, and welcome to the Definitive Wrap, where we discuss the news items the mainstream media just won't touch. You know, when it comes to foreign policy, few nations live under a microscope more than Israel. This small nation of 9 million people, the only democracy in the entire Middle East, is singled out by the United Nations and all of their agencies for criticism on human rights issues, even being accused of war crimes. It is bad enough that this morally bankrupt institution ignores all the human rights abuses across the globe, including slavery, persecution of Christians and women across the Islamic world and African continent. But for Western democracies in Europe to regularly sing out, single out Israel for criticism while having turned their own countries over to radical Islamism is just unconscionable. Today, we have a very special guest with us, Colonel Richard Kemp, who Bela will give a proper introduction to in just a few minutes. Colonel Kemp is not a politician looking to pander for votes. He's not a Facebook general or a columnist looking to advance a biased agenda. He is a military hero and expert on combat and intelligence who has been on the front lines and has testified in support of the IDF and their operations in Gaza because he represents honor and the truth. He has written many columns, including a few that we hope to discuss today on the recent treaties between Israel and the UAE, as well as the apparent EU's history of capitulation and coddling of radical Islam and support of the Palestinian cause. Bela, I know you get some thoughts before introducing the colonel, so go ahead. Hi, um, thank you so much. Alan, whoever thought we would witness in our day the first ever direct passenger flight from Israel to the United Arab Emirates. When we had the historic achievement with the Abraham Accords, there were those who always speak about world peace, yet choose to ignore such momentous triumphs. And that's because with the Abraham Accords, Iran and the Palestinians feel that they lose out. In a moment, we will hear what they are losing and why. So as Alan said, with us today, we are honored to have Colonel Richard Camp, a most humble man who prefers to just be introduced as former British Army commander, but who is so much more that my brief introduction will not do him enough justice. Richard Kemp, who is a former chairman of the COBRA Intelligence Group, head of international terrorism intelligence at the cabinet office, and currently a strategic advisor and consultant and writer, media commentator, and author of the Sunday Times bestseller, Attack State Bread. Colonel, thank you so much for joining. In your article published by the Gatestone Institute just two months ago, you appropriately entitled it, A Great Step Forward for World Peace, and Who Seems Determined to Ignore It. And that's where you discuss the giant leap towards world peace. So for all intents and purposes, the entire world should be jumping for joy right now, but instead the haters, who will always hate, reacted quite cool and not just the backward regimes of Iran, Turkey, and Qatar, but also in parts of the U.S. and in the international media. Can you please explain to our listening audience the thought process of these haters? Because what do the haters really have to lose by it? Well, Bela, thank you very much um, indeed for your kind words at the beginning. I, I, I've been called many things, but I don't think I've ever been called humble before. So that's a... <laughs> Well, I think you are. You most certainly are very <laughs> humble. Um, 
Well, I think I think part of the problem with with this new development with uh, the United States administration's move forward together with Israel and the UAE in particular on the Abraham Accords, I think part of the problem with countries that um, resist it or individuals that resist the idea, and of course the EU have been very cool towards the Abraham Accords, including my own country, Great Britain. Um, and I know that the same applies to many people over there in the United States and elsewhere around the world. And a lot of it, I think, is due to the fact they simply cannot get out of their mindset, their two-state solution mindset, which uh, forces them to believe that the path to peace, the only path to peace in the Middle East, and actually when they say that, they're talking about the whole of the Middle East, not just Israel and the Arabs. The only path to peace is through the Palestinian Arabs. Um, and of course, you know, we've seen people like former Secretary of State John Kerry, who has, has said that something like the Abraham Accords could never happen. Separate peace between Israel and Arab states could never occur. Um, well, of course, uh, Israel, the United States, the UAE and others have proven that's not the case. These Abraham Accords are an extraordinary historic new development, which show that the, the, it show really the failings of decades and decades of peace processing, where the Palestinian Arabs have been given a veto over any progress. Now that veto has been taken away from them, and and the, you know the opponents, the, the haters as you call them, in countries like uh, my own country and in Europe and other countries, um, they they simply cannot accept that they were wrong. And I think they genuinely believe they were right. And they hate the idea, they really hate the idea that their friends among the Palestinian Arab leadership is being marginalized in the way it is. Now, Colonel, one of the questions I've always had, because I understand in the name of being nice, you want to have two states, one for the Jews, one for the Palestinians, but nobody in the West has ever explained how the world would be better off putting a non-democratic Palestinian state on Israel's border. Uh, following the Oslo Accords, uh, George W. Bush in America became president, and he was willing to recognize a Palestinian state on condition that they institute democratic institutions. But nobody else has ever made that demand. And for the life of me, uh, again, I understand the idea of you want, you want to settle a conflict. I, I get that part. But, but thinking or considering the history of the Palestinian leadership, uh, how does the world, what, what could they possibly think is gonna benefit the region or the world by having a country that unstable, that undemocratic, literally threatening Israel, even if Israel is a stronger country, it still becomes another issue for them to have to deal with on a daily basis. Israel is a democracy, they are not. You see, I, I, um, I think most people, I'm sure you'd agree, would, would like to see uh, Palestinian Arabs living in a, a condition of hope, prosperity, freedom, and peace with themselves and with Israel and the countries around them. No, no one really wants anything apart from that, I don't believe. But you, put your, you hit the nail on the head when, when you said that as things stand at the moment, um, really the only... Uh, likelihood is that we have a, what, what effectively would be a kind of Islamic state and by that I'm talking about the terrorist group Islamic state we would have a terrorist uh, at least if it wasn't a terrorist organization running um, a, an Ar a Palestinian Arab state 
it would certainly be open to domination and control and exploitation by terrorist groups. That would be a huge danger for Israel. The reality is that the, the unfortunate reality that many people cannot get their heads around is that the Palestinian Arab leadership do not want, they do not want a two-state solution. That's not what they want. That's what people want for them. It's not what they want. They've been offered it since going right the way back to the 1930s by the UK, which at that time was the mandate control, controlling power in that region. They were offered it back then, they rejected it. They've been offered it by the United Nations uh, in their, uh, uh, the resolution in 1947. They've been offered it many times since they have rejected it. Why? Because all they want is the annihilation of the Jewish state. And now I'm not talking about every Palestinian here. I'm talking about the Palestinian leadership. Those people who are in power now in Gaza and in Judea and Samaria who um, refuse to have elections, their democratic, so-called democratic term of office has long expired. They, they're at war with each other and they want to, be, they want to continue to be at war with, with Israel. And frankly, I mean, I've been to the West Bank many times. I've been to Gaza. I've studied the security situation. And I think it would be a terrible mistake if this current leadership, with their desire to annihilate Israel or to allow Israel's annihilation, were to be given full security control of Judea and Samaria as they demand. It would be suicidal for Israel. It may not be the end of Israel because Israel would fight back and would have to reoccupy that territory. but. Um, it would result in enormous bloodshed, probably more bloodshed among the Palestinians than among the, uh, the Jewish population oh, yeah. in, in Israel. I think the, I think the um, you know, the, the, the sad reality is that those people who would benefit most from peace between Israel and the Palestinians, not the Israelis, of course many would benefit, but the main beneficiaries of a peace uh, would be the Palestinian Arabs. Colonel, um, I would like to go back a bit in history. In the 1930s, people identified and, and appeased Hitler. In fact, he had a tremendous loyal following. I'm a child of Holocaust survivors, and I grew up hearing stories from older Holocaust survivors, people who were, you know, friends uh, of the in the community, and they talked about how there were uh, Jews who actually were loyal followers of Hitler too. I guess they, they didn't realize, and if one can try to understand that it was a result of the aftermath of World War, of the First World War, and the destabilized economy, and what his followers believed he could improve for them as a leader. Colonel, you are a most prolific writer, and I was intrigued when I read your article comparing Europeans appeasing Iran, a major threat against Israel, and also the aggression across the Middle East. Why don't people, especially Britain and France, learn from history's catastrophe, and why are they appeasing the powers of Iran, China, and Russia that are threatening the world today? I think that the descent of Europe um, really began in the First World War. The shock of the slaughter, the mass slaughter of the First World War, sent Europe reeling, even though you know, countries like Britain, France, and others were the victors in that war, together, of course, with the Amer Americans who came in to essentially to, to save us, as they did in the Second World War. Um, but it's, it, sent, um, it sent Europe reeling. And then, of course, the experience of the Second World War made that even worse. And so we today have 
countries who are they they they've they're almost sort of defeatist they lack the moral spine the moral backbone to to be able to differentiate between right and wrong and in fact there's a number of factors that lead the europeans to want to appease iran and also other aggressive arab states in the past particularly the arab aggression seems to be dissolving as far as israel's concerned but those factors include effectively one one point that i just sort of touched on anti-americanism believe it or not because european countries they see israel as being a, a kind of proxy for the united states of america that's one of the contexts they see israel in and they have never many many european countries leaders have never forgiven the united states of america for saving their them or in the second world war and in the case of germany for defeating them in the second world war right believe it or not that remains an important factor as to why they should be anti-american and and as an extension of that they're anti-israeli and i think the the trump um administration if anything intensified their their um their anti-americanism because it it's kind of you know president trump demonstrated his lack of uh willingness to to kowtow to the europeans as some other americans have done and that's one of the main factors i think and we can go you know we can go through a large list of other factors i won't dwell on it but you know the imperial past of some european countries there is imperial guilt towards them and therefore they they also in some ways see wrongly see israel as a kind of imperial outpost wrongly i stress uh, and and they they see the enemies of israel as being you know the the downtrodden um people who have been who were were effectively were mistreated by the empires so they have that imperial guilt which leads them to side with iran for example against israel they pander they've been pandering to the arabs for um for many years partly as a result of the oil that they know they need from the arab world um they have a fear of jihadists in their own country and we've seen many attacks and attempted attacks in europe including ordered by iran oh yeah uh, they have an increasing islamic electorate and they see rightly or wrongly they see muslims as being generally opposed to israel and i think that is a fact uh, which few can dispute and they 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 want to they want to get the votes of many of those people is muslims who are in their communities and they, and by doing that they 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 think it's right to take a line against israel and then finally of course as that terrible long-term scourge of europe anti-semitism which plays a part as well Colonel, I want to ask you a question. I I watched many of your videos, and uh, one of them where you testified before uh, with on behalf of UN Watch, where that you got close up to Gaza. So I'm just wondering, how did Colonel Kemp get get that role? Um, you know, how did they find you, and how did you become all of a sudden you know the go-to person in this field? Um, you know, again, I followed your career. I've read many of your columns on Facebook. Everyone adores you. So apparently. You know, we found you. Um, where did you come from, and how did you get to this position? I'm not sure you could say everybody adores me <laughs> on uh, the good on people adore you social media platforms. Um, uh, I have many enemies, but as Margaret Thatcher said, if you haven't, if you don't have any enemies, then you haven't uh, achieved anything in your life. It may have been right. church. That's like a good I'm... thing. It's a good sign <laughs> that you have enemies. <laughs> exactly. exactly. But. Um, Yeah, I mean, my my past with Israel goes back a long way, and really, I mean, to 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 avoid boring your your listeners, 
I, you I, could I, never I, bore our listeners. <laughs> okay. I, I, in particular, um, worked closely with the Israeli intelligence services and forces during the time I was working in Number Ten Downing Street for um, the, the Joint Intelligence Committee and and the Cobrant Crisis Management Committee. Um, and I, 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 as I said, I wish, you know, I was dealing with counter-terrorist intelligence and of course, who are the go-to people on that? The Israelis. And so I worked closely with them. I saw the enormous benefit that our country and other countries across the world gain from their security relationship with Israel, Never mind the economic trade relationship, but just security alone. The intelligence provided by Israel that has stopped uh, terrorist attacks around the world. Just one example of that, there was a an Iranian ordered bomb plot due to take place in London in 2015, which was prevented by our security authorities based on intelligence provided by the Israelis. That's one of many examples. Anyway, I, I developed a, a, an understanding and actually an admiration for the Israelis and the way they handle things. And so when I left the armed forces um, and I saw the, I, I recognized the, the injustice of the the propaganda campaign and the lies about Israel and its military operations. Uh, I was then, as a, a private citizen, free to, to speak the truth. And I felt I was in quite a unique position, being not Jewish, not Israeli, and actually having quite an extensive uh, career, including a lot of experience fighting the type of fight that the Israelis have been fighting. So I could bring what I consider anyway to be objectivity as well as expertise to that argument. And I've done everything I can as well as uh, various other commitments I have, to, to try and dispel some of the lies and some of the false propaganda. And the way I see it is that Israel has been subjected to the greatest propaganda campaign, the greatest slur campaign in the history of the world since it was formed in 1948, or reformed, shall I say, in 1948. I want to ask you something that I know you and I had spoken about earlier. Uh, recently, we, there was the assassination in Iran of one of uh, Iran's leading uh, scientists developing the nuclear program. Um, and, and to me, it always boggles my mind that the people who come out and condemn it. Uh, here in the U.S., former CIA director under Barack Obama, John Brennan, who is um, an Islamist, he condemned the assassination. And we saw the Europeans condemning it. And, you know, again, we don't know if it was Israel. It might very well have been Israel because it, it, it could have happened. But nevertheless, why, what is it about Europe, again, that they can't even compartmentalize? Okay, you want to criticize Israel, you want a Palestinian state. But how does something, an event like this, which should almost gratify them and like they can like almost have a sigh of relief that now they don't even have to consider getting back into a deal with them, which Joe Biden should he be confirmed, had promised to go back into, now they can almost breathe a sigh of relief. Thank God we don't have to deal with this mess for now. Well, just a word on, on before I properly answer your question, just a word on um, John Brennan's condemnation of the, uh, the targeted killing, if that's what it was, that's what it appears to be, of the uh, Iranian nuclear scientist. He, he essentially said that it was uh, illegal under international law to carry out a targeted assassination of that type. But what he neglected to mention in making those comments was that he was in the White House Situation Room uh, in 2011, I think it was, when um, Barack Obama uh, ordered the assassination or the, the, the targeted killing, shall we say, by SEAL Team 6 of Osama bin Laden. 
he also was working as counter-terrorist advisor to, to Obama and then director of the CIA throughout a, a campaign of drone strikes using targeted killings throughout various different countries in the world, most notably Pakistan and Afghanistan. He, he not only presided over them, he also publicly justified them. Yet this is different. And he, he effectively draws a distinction between a, um, a, a terrorist from a, non, not a non-state actor, in other words, and a member of a state. Well, let's not forget that that state, Iran, has been at war with the United States and with Israel since the Islamic Resolution, Revolution in 1979. It's carried out various different military strikes and terrorist attacks against Israel, the United States, and their allies in the region and around the world. This is a country at war. And the so-called scientist, yes, he was the leader of the Iranian nuclear project. He was also an officer in the IRGC, which is a prescribed terrorist organization. So I don't think, I think it's very hard to justify the, the remarks by John Brennan and by the EU that that assassination was illegal. In terms of the, the, um, the EU's attitude to the JCPOA, the, the nuclear deal, I think the reality there is that there were many in Europe, including particularly France and to a lesser extent Britain, who were worried about that deal when it was made. They weren't really happy with it. They went along with it for one reason. That was because President Obama wanted it. And President Obama in Europe was and remains a saint. Whatever he wants, he gets. And he got that. Um, and then, then, of course, when President Trump, who was seen in, in Europe as the Antichrist, when he pulled out of the JCPOA, that left Europe in a quandary. I think many of them wanted to follow, many countries wanted to follow Trump out of the JCPOA, but they couldn't. They couldn't bring themselves to do it because it was Trump and it went against Obama. Uh, and and the, the other thing that they were doing, I think, more recently is hedging their bets against uh, a Biden victory in the uh, U.S. general election. Um, and, the, yeah, that, that, that they, they obviously were not prepared to to do something that gave succor to President Trump and his policies, which would annoy what they saw as the likely future president. And I think that accounts for, I think it's more to do with those kind of political considerations than any real security concerns. Because if they were really concerned about security, they would re- they would completely have rejected the JCPOA and they'd refuse to go back into the JCPOA. Because what it does, it, it claims to, um, it claims to prevent Iran uh, gaining a nuclear weapon capability, but actually what it does, it simply kicks the can down the road so that future generations have to pick up the problem of a nuclear armed state, which is inevitable under the JCPOA. So I think it's grossly irresponsible. And it's an example, and I, I don't criticize politicians on a blanket basis, but it is an example of politicians who, um, you know, who would much rather not deal and confront a problem if it's likely to cause them problems, which this would right now, they'd rather hand it off and let someone else deal with it when they've left, left office. Right. Colonel, um, as we're sadly coming close to our time up um, on our show today, uh, I, I know we just, we, we cannot end un, until uh, we could ask you to please briefly talk about your New York Times bestseller, Attack State Red. What is it about and um, what was your motivation for writing this fascinating I can't put that book down, Reed. Well, it's very kind of you to say so. I thought when you said we're sadly coming to an end, you were going to ask me to <laughs> sing a song before we stopped. I was about <laughs> hey, to stop you know what? 
wait, I, I could, I could go for that. <laughs> you don't want to make that on your listeners. Trust me. Um, that, that book was actually about uh, a, a very notable tour in Afghanistan by British forces who were fighting alongside, of course, their American allies uh, in Afghanistan in Helmand back in 2007. They sustained a lot of casualties. They inflicted a lot of casualties. They inflicted, of course, many more casualties than they sustained. But the, the, the reason I wrote it is because I, I was talking to soldiers returning from Afghanistan. I left the army by this stage, by the time of this tour. But I was talking to soldiers. What who, year was that? I, I wrote it in 2009. It was published in 2009, after the tour okay. in 2007. And they, they were, soldiers were coming back, for example, for, for R&R or for, uh, to, to, to attend funerals of their colleagues who were killed in Afghanistan. Yeah. And I met many of them, and their greatest complaint was not, we haven't got enough food, we haven't got enough bullets, we're not paid enough, we're living in discomfort. Their greatest complaint was that people back home don't understand what we've gone through. They don't know anything about it. They can't see it. So I wanted to write an account of their actions that put the, the lay reader, the average person, into the boots of a British soldier fighting in Afghanistan. Right. Oh. Good. Do, Bela, do we still have time for, uh, for uh, any more questions? Just one more question. Okay. So, you know, Colonel, um, one of the things that I also want to bring up, going back to the, the Iran nuclear deal, is that um, I noticed whenever there has been like a conflict in the region and the U.S. has decided that we're going to go to war, that Britain was always alongside of us. I remember when we, uh, with Desert Storm, Desert Fox, Tony Blair was the first to jump in. And I noticed that there is always a little bit of a fissure between Great Britain and, uh, and the other European countries. Uh, do you see this going forward um, with Boris Johnson, um, who seems to be uh, almost like Donald Trump light, uh, supporting uh, going along with Joe Biden or perhaps, you know, having to be uh, the more tougher leader um, as we enter in potentially new conflicts with Iran? I think, um, I mean, Britain, you know, we had, we had a, li a few little local difficulties between Briti Britain and America back in the Revolutionary War and then the War of 1812, when we didn't necessarily see eye to eye. But since then, and actually since the, the opium wars against China, British and American forces have, have fought alongside each other. And, and without, without exception, except for the Vietnam War, when we did not get involved, we've been involved in every other conflict the Americans have. We've been right at their side. Um, and quite rightly, too, because, of course, you know, we, we should never forget, first of all, what the Americans did for us in the First and Second World Wars in Europe. And secondly, we, are, we, we, we have a common heritage, we have common culture, we have co common standards um, between both of our countries, and, of course, a sort of similar-ish language as well. Um, but uh, I, th I think that, that, I mean, I would certainly want to see any future British government fighting alongside the Americans in any fight they fight, providing, of course, the fight is just, which I'm pretty sure it is likely to be in, in any future eventuality, whether it's Iran, whether it's in relation to China or other conflicts around the world. So I would hope that, uh, that Boris Johnson and future prime minister will have the courage to stand alongside whichever president is uh, in, president of the United States at the time, as, as you say, Tony Blair did, as Margaret Thatcher did at the time of the first Gulf War. Um, and, and, you know, the, I think you know, the, the, the threats we face from countries like Iran and from China and to a lesser extent from Russia are so great that we have to work 
in concert as allies, Britain and America, but also many other Western countries as we can muster. Unfortunately, many European countries tend to be very timid when it comes to actually putting their money where their mouth is and, and deploying forces to fight. They've some, some of them got quite effective forces, but they, they lack the political will in many cases to actually fight for what they need to fight for. Thank you so much, Colonel. It, it's an honor it, and a real enjoyable half hour. Um, and I know our listening audience will agree. Thank you so much for joining us. And I hope you will join us again very soon. Thank you. How could, uh, how could people get in touch with you? Uh, is there, if they have any questions about your book, if you answer any questions? I think um, I've, I have a website, which is called Richard. Um, I think it's richard-kemp.com. They can contact me through there. There's a way of uh, contacting me there. And also I'm on various social media sites, including most, most frequently um, Twitter, which is at C-O-L Richard Kemp. That's on Twitter at C-O-L Richard Kemp. So they can really get me really by either of those two means. And I'd be delighted to come back on your show. I really enjoyed it. Thank you very much for having Thank me. Thank you. Thank you. Okay. And on behalf of Alan and myself, have an amazing day. Thank you. You too.